But all right, let's open once again Romans chapter 10. Lord willing, we're going to finish Romans 10 this morning. We'll have one chapter remaining in this section dealing primarily with Israel, God's purposes with them as a country, as a nation. Romans chapter 10, when you get there, if you'll stand, and I'll read the text for us. Beginning in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words into the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Esaias is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Let's pray. Father, once again we come thankful that You've given us Your blessed Word. You've given us the health to be here this morning. You've given us the mental capacity to understand. Father, we ask You once again to do a work that's a mystery to us, but reflection of Your perfect character that You desire to build us up. Lord, You've given Your Word to correct our false notions, to show us what is right, to set us straight, to build us up in our most holy faith. Father, we pray that You would do that work this morning. Father, I pray You would reveal things to hearts today as Your Word is taught. I pray You would help me be faithful to this passage. Lord, there are an infinite number of things that could be said just on this text, but let those things necessary for this people right now be said. Thank You for Your love towards us. Thank You, Lord, that 2,000 years ago a Savior did come into this world. And now we ever live it to make intercession for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. I think all of us, when somebody starts to mention what we would call a cliché, we all sort of roll our eyes because we hear these statements used all the time. If I were to begin the sentence this morning, a chain is only as strong as... All of you would mentally fill it in with its weakest link. Now last time we finished with verse 15, with God's viewpoint of those who are heralds of the good news of salvation through Christ. And we saw there that those heralds, those preachers of the Gospel, which obviously extends to those whom God has called to that specific office, but really to any one of us, who's been given the Great Commission. I mean, all of us, if we are Christian people, are called to be heralds of the good news in at least some capacity. But anybody who does preach that message is merely a part of a chain of events that God has initiated, that leads to the salvation of a soul through the supernatural power of God Himself. 
Now all that occurs behind the scenes when a person is truly converted, we may never know. Maybe in eternity, God will be pleased to tell us everything that took place behind the scenes to bring you to Christ. Wouldn't that be interesting to find out? The angelic battles... Those people who you didn't even know were praying for you, who who were. Those influences that you forgot about, but yet uh, God knows who they were. Uh, But at least for now, we're given the basics. And of course, any good done in any human soul ultimately has to be traced back to God Himself, who is the originator of anything and everything that is good. But alright, in this particular chain of events, where is it that the chain fails the most? I mean, obviously, if we look around us, the world is not Christian, nor is it becoming more Christian. Far from it. And the failure cannot be chalked up to God's account. He's made every provision necessary and desires all men to be saved. Now, the Bible does in both Testaments teach the doctrine of blood on the hands. It's not a pleasant thing to discuss. Ezekiel mentioned it. In his prophecy in the Old Testament, Paul brought it up in the New, that he's free from the blood of all men. I think all of us, to some degree, bear some responsibility for a failure not to be as bold as we should have been. But yet, that's not a complete answer to the dilemma. Nobody is going to face God's judgment entirely because of somebody else's failure. God's justice demands that. And the Scriptures affirm that in too many places to talk about that this morning. But where does the breakdown occur? I mean, I suppose if you and I were ignorant of a lot of history in human nature, we just knew the basics of the fact and not the outcome or not the statistics, and you were to insert us right there into verse 8 through 15 and begin to tell the story of a fallen race under condemnation, but yet their very Creator condescends an omnipotent power and yet humility to walk among them and redeem them from their sins. And that He requires man to do nothing, in fact, the very opposite of nothing, trusting in the merit that another has provided. And that the same Lord is rich unto all that call upon Him. I suppose if that's all you knew, you would be amazed to find out that most of humanity just simply marches proudly across the pages of history without so much as slowing down to listen to the voice of God. Why is that? Well, the problem in this chain of events really is broken up or brought up in this first chapter, first line of verse 16. The one link that's consistently broken. God's going to do His part. He's always made sure there have been those with beautiful feet who have been commissioned and sent. They have preached. Men have heard. Many have believed. And as a result, have lived lives that have called upon the name of the Lord. Redemption has been available. It has been promised since the first sin committed and all the way to the end of Revelation which closes with the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. God's heart is a redemptive heart. But what does it say at the beginning of verse 16? But, isn't it too bad that word has to be there? But they have not obeyed the gospel. Isn't that interesting terminology? I mean, we don't go to people and say, 
Obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Why does he use that word? Well, one thing that shows is the gospel does indeed carry an ultimatum from heaven. If you've noticed today in our popular culture, it's nice to emphasize sharing Jesus with people. Doesn't that sound nice? I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad word, but here's my point. Search the New Testament for that kind of terminology and it's tough to find. The gospel is not an I'm okay, you're okay, my truth, your truth, let's sit down and dialogue kind of message. The gospel of Christ is a declarative ultimatum from the God of heaven and earth. The gospel of Christ is truth. The gospel of Christ is presented to people as the only way of salvation without excuse, without apology, and without modification. Sometimes I fear we view God's mercy as God in this sort of servile position, hat in hand, following around rebels with the coattails of His royal robes dragging in the dust and grime of the earth. Do you understand that God condescending to extend mercy for long periods of time to rebels does nothing to tarnish His majesty? The Gospel is God's ultimatum from heaven and it is most assuredly an extension of mercy. But the other edge of that two-edged sword is it's a warning about the rejection that men respond with and what the ultimate end of that is going to be. In other words, it carries with it a warning that is going to be brought up as evidence on Judgment Day. I think I've mentioned this before, but it has stuck my mind for, for quite some time. One of the things that led to Charles Haddon Spurgeon's conversion was hearing his mother pray. And here she was kneeled down and he happened to walk by and hear her saying, Oh God, if my son perishes in hell, I'm going to have to be called to bear swift witness against his soul because he's heard the truth in this house and I don't want to do that. You talk about coals of fire on a young man's head. But his mother understood the truth of what it means that God commands men to obey the Gospel. Remember the words in Acts 17, Paul preaches to these pagan idolaters at Mars Hill, and he's talking about their former actions, and he says the times of this ignorance God winked at. He just he passed over it in mercy. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. He said this isn't a suggestion. This isn't something for you to chew on like a piece of fine cheese. This is God telling you what you are required to do or face the consequences. In fact, back in uh, verse 3 of this same chapter, he says the Jews had not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, uh, among those that actually do understand something about how to be saved, many times the problem is not one of the mind, but the will. They will not obey the Gospel. If we're going to deal with the souls of men, I think we have to candidly admit one of the great difficulties in dealing with people is discerning the difference between one who honestly needs more instruction and one who needs warning. What do you think Jude had in mind when he said, if some have compassion making a difference, others save with fear? hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Part of that is, recognize when it's actually a lack of knowledge that's the problem, 
but also recognize when there's sufficient knowledge and a refusal to submit themselves to that knowledge is the problem. Because you deal with those two people very differently. And listen, there is no precise formula for knowing that. We've got to be led by the Spirit in that area. I mean, is somebody's real problem a lack of teaching? It might be, which is often the case, or is it one of the will? I mean, how many people do you think in history or that are alive right now, they spend their whole life uh, bouncing from group to group seeking information, seeking knowledge, seeking light, seeking truth, but they never quite seem to get there. There's many in Hollywood like this. I was just reading this week about Patrick Swayze, the actor that died of pancreatic cancer not too long ago. You see, he had this fascination with religion. Let's see what the Unitarians believe. Scientology, what do they have to say in that? How about Zen Buddhism? Well, that's an interesting one. And from the outside, you may look and say, boy, that uh, the poor person, they're not seeming to find what they're looking for. What that can be is an escape mechanism to avoid dealing with the real issue, a refusal to submit unto the righteousness of God and obey the gospel. And sometimes what a person like that needs to hear is something like this. How long are you going to dance around the actual problem? Let's not beat around the bush here, friend. You know the tenets of the gospel. You know there's only two ways. There's you work it out or God's worked it out for you. How long are you going to stand on the fence? This is essentially what... You remember what, uh, what does Isaiah or uh, Elijah say on Mount Carmel? How long halt you between two opinions? In other words, quit the pretense. You know truth, you know error. Now which one are you going to pick? Because you can't have both. I remember Paul spoke of men in 2 Timothy 3.7. Maybe this phrase will stick out in your mind that they were ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I suppose if you were to pull that text out, you might say, well, those poor people, they just couldn't quite grasp it. I mean, their religious instruction leading to the Gospel just never quite came. They never marched across and received their degree of understanding. Or you keep reading and Paul says, just like Janus and Jambres, those were the two uh, uh, magicians that withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. So what Paul is saying is, on the outside they were on this quest for truth. They had this pious face of always looking for answers and always looking for some new light. But he says, on the inside, it was a resistance in the fact they would not obey the Gospel of Christ. That was what was really going on. Now verse 16 is primarily referring to the history of the Jews. Can you imagine what kind of excuses they could have come up with and that they did? Now Moses was just too austere of a personality. I think Moses was kind of legalistic myself. You know, that mountain experience there at the base of Sinai, that was, that was kind of scary. I, I really, I, frankly, I don't prefer a God of judgment. I just, that doesn't fit in with my view of things. The God that I serve wouldn't act like that on the mountain and make poor little children tremble. All religious people are hypocrites. I mean, I just look at Elijah or Eli and his sons. I mean, come on. You know, all this stuff happened in the past, some might say. I, I want a more up-to-date message. 
I'll wait till I'm older to make an informed decision. I'm still gathering information, another one says. Well, God diagnoses it for what it is. A refusal to yield stiff neck and obey the gospel. You know, I believe firmly one of the most shocking revelations on Judgment Day. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be what people actually knew. One of the reasons that we accept this Freudian nonsense of mankind's hardly responsible for what he does is because we have a tendency to not believe what God says people actually know and what the Holy Spirit is actually doing. I mean, you remember Romans 1? They're what? Without excuse. What's the Holy Spirit doing in John, John chapter 16? He's reproving the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Every person born into this world and growing up with a reasonable degree of intelligence has the Spirit of God working within to tell them what's wrong, what's right, and that a day of reckoning is coming. And you see it brought up in Revelation 6. What are they crying there when they're hiding in the dens and cliffs and the mountains of the rocks? They're saying, the great day of His wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? What does that show? They know who it's from. They know why it's there. They know who it's coming against. And they know they can't stand it. And that's all internal stuff just coming out. The mask comes off. And notice the grief of the prophet expressed in verse 16. Lord, who hath believed our report? And over 40 years, Isaiah had uh, heralded the truth to his countrymen and went largely unheeded except as an object of ridicule and scorn. And of course, history records he was sawn in half by the wicked king Manasseh. He begins in chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, oh, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. No hint to blame shifting there, is there? But in the same chapter, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white. Like snow. The opening verse of Isaiah 53, which is where this quotation comes from. Isaiah is going to present the Messiah with no natural attractive beauty. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One who's going to make his grave with the wicked. One who's going to be bruised by God Almighty when his soul is made an offering for sin. Listen, there were those even back then who preferred a designer Messiah. But Isaiah is crying out saying, Lord, is there anybody who's going to believe in the Messiah that you've actually given? We can identify with it, can we not? I mean, there's many who will believe, but the other side of that truth, all of us, I think, to some degree, are saying, Lord, who will believe our report? It's an astounding fact that so many reject the truth. But notice the conclusion given about faith in verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now I was tempted to just preach a message on that one statement. I think it's a great textual sermon to really apply it all across the board in the Scriptures. I've opted not to do that, but I do want to stop and make some, I think, needed applications of that. Why, first of all, does he express it this way? 
I mean, why say faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? Why not just say faith comes by the Word of God? Well, uh, it's in keeping with that chain mentioned back in verse 14. How shall they believe or exercise faith in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, a preacher being defined as someone who speaks the Word of God, which by the way, disqualifies multitudes today that claim that title. Secondly, shown there is a critical element between believing and the Word of God, and that has to do with somebody's level of receptivity. It's interesting to note, actually, the word hearing here. There's several Greek words translated hearing. This is the more general term. It can speak merely of the scientific process or something more than that. But you see what Isaiah is quoted as saying, Lord, who hath believed our report? The word report there is the same exact word as faith cometh by hearing. So here's Isaiah crying out saying, Lord, is anybody believing the message we're putting forward to the ear? God says faith is going to come through that message that is put forward to the ear. Faith comes by that very message that's presented. Now, for one thing, it shows men are not accountable for light they are not given. The Scriptures affirm that all over the place. How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? Many will be condemned just on the basis of natural revelation. Romans chapter 1. I have a hard time with that one too, but that's what the Bible teaches. Somebody doesn't like it, they can take it up with God. He knows the conscience. He knows what men knew. I don't. He does. But, secondly, spiritual hearing means more than just the scientific phenomenon of sound waves moving an eardrum, pushing miniature bones, and shoving fluid through a little uh, snail-shaped membrane and triggering a, uh, a nerve and going into the brain and then being perceived as intelligible communication. Spiritual hearing is more than just the scientific process of actual hearing, and it basically involves the will. You remember Isaiah said of the same Jews, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand. In other words, the breakdown between faith and the Word was the will. That's what stopped it. Third, faith is produced by the willing reception of a message, and not just any message, the Word of God. For one thing, focusing on faith is never going to produce faith. You see that all the time today with these sensationalist guys. Just say it and believe it as hard as you can. Faith is not produced that way. That's why such a trail of ruined lives follows in the wake of that. That's not God's appointed means for producing faith in the human heart. Neither can psychology or sociology or self-esteem or anything else that man invents. God produces faith through the channel of the Holy Scriptures, period. That is the instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to produce faith in the human heart. Now let's apply this to evangelism for a minute. What is going to be used of God to produce real saving faith in the heart of a lost person? It's going to be the Word of God. Friends, that alone should make us wary of the modern trend to boil a whole message down to six verses and a bunch of psychological pressure. Listen, a presentation doesn't produce faith. Gimmicks do not produce faith. Explanations of how to believe don't produce faith. The Word of God produces faith. 
I mean, consider some of the accounts in the New Testament where this is verified. Then they that gladly received His Word were baptized, right as they were listening. Howbeit many of them which heard the Word believed, they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. Some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. Right in the hearing of the Word, boom, they're converted. Because faith came by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now, if hearing the Word of God produces faith, then emphasis of anyone who wants to represent, present the Gospel should be more Scripture reading, not less. You often hear it today. Someone says, I don't know how to believe. Well, the Bible simply gives the command and doesn't give instructions on how. Someone says, I don't know how to believe. They need more hearing of the Word of God. And that's precisely why in the New Testament you see God's messengers giving tremendous time to instructing those that were inquirers. Sometimes from morning till evening or for entire days. Because they understood this premise. Other gimmicks don't produce faith and there is no set time amount. We preach the Word until faith is produced. How about as a Christian person? Now, I want to illustrate something here that I think many times uh, we inadvertently misunderstand. I mean, can you ever identify with the disciples? Remember what they asked in the opening verses of Luke 17? Lord, increase our faith. You ever been there? Can you read that and go, boy, that's a legitimate thing to ask. And it is. We have times where we definitely realize how much we're lacking in faith, but... Uh, maybe you've noticed if you traveled there to see how that was dealt with, it wasn't quite what you would expect. The context is he's telling the disciples of their need to exercise forgiveness with their sinning brother. Even if he says does the same thing and repents seven times in a day, he says, you shall forgive him. And their response is, Lord, increase our faith. But it's interesting, Jesus doesn't slap them on the head and go, thy faith is increased. In fact, what he does is go into discussion and say, you know something? If you had faith even the size of a grain of mustard seed, you'd go speak to that big sycamore tree over there. You'd tell it be plucked up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would do it. And then the conversation moves on. If you read that and you're looking for an answer to that dilemma, you're thinking, now why did he respond that way? I mean, what's the deal? Why would he respond by pointing out their obvious lack in the faith department and not just zapping them with something to fix the problem? It's like it's just left right there. He did answer that prayer, but not the way they were hoping. He did increase their faith if we pay careful attention. You could look at John 2.22. When therefore He was risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said unto them, said this unto them, and they believed the Scriptures and the Word which Jesus had said. What was it that made faith burn in the hearts of the disciples on the road to Emmaus? He didn't open unto them their faith. He opened unto them the Scriptures. I mean, even in Acts chapter 11, here poor Peter's called out on the carpet for bringing the Gospel to the Gentiles. The Jerusalem church is not happy about the whole thing. And they're asking him, what's the deal? Well, Peter frankly confesses, I wasn't exactly sure, but when I saw the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles, he says, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. 
In other words, it was his remembrance of the Scriptures that gave him the faith to do what God was leading him to do. What's the common link in Hebrews 11? By faith. In what? The beginning of the chapter, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. How do you know what things to hope for and to see the invisible when you don't have eyes to see? One way. The express statements of God. Now here's my point. You sit here and you say, my faith needs to increase. Can I put this bluntly? You can write on your prayer list, you're going to ask God to increase your faith morning, noon, and night for the next year. And do you understand He is not going to answer that prayer unless you simultaneously determine to be saturated with the Word of God? Do we understand that? I think sometimes Christian people are going, Lord, increase my faith. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, listen, He's not going to invent plan B. You want faith increased? You increase your knowledge of the Word of God. This is where reading the Scriptures has to turn more into meditation, making application, actually listening, actually getting a doctrinal foundation built up. That's what increases faith. Part of what you're doing here this morning, being under the Word of God. Do you understand faith is being built right now? Let's turn that around. Someone says, I don't need to be under the preaching of the Word of God. Faith is being torn down. Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith does not come by only asking. Faith does not come by some zap from heaven. It doesn't come by feeling guilty and berating yourself. It doesn't come by asking other people how to exercise it. It doesn't come by music. Boy, does the contemporary church need to learn that one. It doesn't come by reading biographies of Christian people. Do you know reading about William Carey can never produce faith in your heart to go out and do great things for God? It may motivate you and show you your own lack. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And faith is not going to be built any other way. Now the next four verses begin with the word but, and then they end with an Old Testament quotation. And basically he's setting the stage for this discussion in chapter 11. I mean, what about the Jews now and the future? Is God simply finished with them? How have they historically responded to the incredible goodness of God? Now verse 18 begins, I think he's anticipating an objection. Have they not heard? Yeah, but wait a minute. Aren't there some that could claim ignorance, Paul? I mean... Can't some of them say, I really didn't know? It's interesting how he answers that. I mean, they're asking if faith, if hearing causes faith, then why isn't every Jew a believer in the Lord Jesus? And it's true. Of all people that have ever existed, uh, the Jews are the people that have been chosen to hear about the God of the Bible more than any other. By miracles by audible voices from heaven, by prophets, by signs and wonders, and finally, the Son of God dwelling bodily in their midst. He didn't come to Canada. He didn't come to Africa. He came to the land of Palestine, there around the city of David. I mean, they actually heard the voice of the only perfect preacher who's ever existed. They actually listened to the only sermons that could not be improved on. Do you understand? 
every sermon the Son of God preached was flawless. It couldn't have been said any better. I think the problem is one that Paul describes in Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. And here he is speaking to New Testament Hebrew Christians. But he's talking about the Jewish unbelief. And here's what he says, "...let us therefore fear..." lest the promise being left us of entering into that rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the Gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith and them that heard it. He says, oh, they heard it all right. But the chain was broken in the will. And faith wasn't produced. Oh, the sounds of the good news bounced off their physical eardrum, but they had shut up their heart tighter than a bank vault, and they weren't going to change. I've marveled at this phenomenon. I think anybody who's done any amount of preaching has. You can see two people sitting side by side. One of them's just arrested by divine truth. Especially in a setting preaching the Gospel to those you know are lost. I mean, one of them sits here, he looks like he's going to die for fear. The guy next to him may as well be blowing a kazoo and licking a lollipop. He could care less. And they're hearing the same message. Now, I don't know why that is, but I do know that it is. That does happen. Now, look at the quotation. Here's his answer to that. Have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, It's interesting where that quotation comes from. Maybe you recognize it. It comes from Psalm 19, chapter 4. How does that psalm begin? Not Moses. The heavens declare, shout out the glory of God. And the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. He completely bypasses talking about the revelation of God to them specifically, and he goes back to natural revelation through creation, and he says, no, they are not guiltless. They can walk out and look up at a starry sky and realize there's a Creator. They can yield their stiff neck to that information. They can find the Gospel, but they won't. And in doing so, he doesn't indict just the Jews. He indicts the whole world that refuses to listen to what God says, even through the medium of creation. Verse 19, did did not Israel know? Well, they heard, yes, but a step further, did they know? Along with the word preached that was heard and rejected came an even more damaging proof of guilt. The word know is talking about not just a passing glance, but the perception of the mind. Not only were they given the privilege to listen to the truth, they actually perceived the message in their hearts. Many of them had stood there on the virtual brink of heaven and hell with much time and sound reason with which to contemplate both directions. They understood the implications of the Gospel message. They were convinced of its truth, but refused to humble themselves and obey the message. Maybe some of you remember the passage in Hebrews 6 that's caused a great many believers consternation. But he talks about it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and the powers of the world to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. He's not talking about a believer losing their salvation. 
Believers have done more than just taste and just been made partaker. We are full possessors. But here's what he's describing. An individual who not that we know, but God knows has come to the place of full conviction. They see the divide between heaven and hell. They see Christ crucified. They're arrested by conviction of sin. They know the way of truth. And they know the dividing line is their own will. And they turn back. We don't recognize those people. God does. But what He says about such a person is it's impossible to renew them to repentance. They've crossed God's deadline. Now, applicationally, this is basically what the Jews had done as a nation during the time of Christ. They attributed the works of the Son of God to the devil. They nailed Him to the cross of a common criminal and knowingly put to death the only sinless man who ever lived. And then they furthermore lied to cover up the resurrection which proved what I'm saying. You see, for many people, the truth is just too costly to grasp hold of. They'd rather cling to a lie. They'd rather hope to be excused when judgment finally comes. Maybe they can play stupid and God's not going to know the difference. It's not going to work. Not just what people did will be revealed. What they knew and what they could have known will also factor in. And God's saying, quit making excuses about it. Stop treating it like an intellectual problem. Call it what it is. The end of verse 19, what he's doing is showing the fact that the gospel going to the Gentile world was an ancient Jewish doctrine. It wasn't some new thing. You know, the Jews treated this uh, message of Christ going to the Gentiles like a departure uh, from historic teaching. But... uh, (laughs) I mean, even the Jewish Christians. Christians were furious at Peter for going to eat with Gentiles. They still didn't understand this in Acts chapter 11. You remember what happened in Acts 22? Paul's warned in the previous chapter by the prophet Agabus, now whoever wears this mantle is going to be bound in Jerusalem and and carried off and executed. Remember that? And uh, here they are telling Paul, don't go, don't go. And he says, what mean you to weep and break mine heart? I'm ready not, also, not, not just to be bound, but to die for Christ. So he goes to Jerusalem and predictably he's apprehended in the temple. And here this angry mob is going to tear him limb from limb. The soldiers intervene, they grab him, they take him to the castle and they're going up the stairs and Paul says, can I speak to the people? Now the centurion's shocked he can speak Greek because he thinks Paul's an Egyptian. Paul turns to the crowd, starts speaking in Hebrew. They're shocked he can speak Hebrew because they don't think he's Jewish in that sense. So he starts to speak and they keep silence. Remember what he says? Uh, Here he starts to talk. He he recounts his history as a Pharisee trained at the feet of Gamaliel. So far, so good. He gives the tale of his conversion experience. No problem still. Then he mentions Jesus of Nazareth speaking from heaven and they still listen to him. He talks about his baptism. He mentions Stephen as a martyr, as a true preacher, still listening patiently. And then he quotes the Lord saying, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. The dust flies in the air. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it's not fit that he should live. They listen to everything else, but when he said, I'm going to the Gentiles, they said, let's kill him. <laughs> 
I think it's amazing uh, that the Jews seem to have the mindset, we're going to reject this one who we know is the Messiah, but we refuse to acknowledge. And we have the authority to reject him worldwide. And when we reject him, that's final. And none of the rest of the world can have him. But God says, nah-uh. Basically, Paul is saying here, you remember your hero Moses? And he quotes back to the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He's saying, your big uh, hero Moses, remember the song he sang before you ever entered the promised land? And here's basically what he said. Not only have you been stiff-necked and stubborn against the Word of God, but I'm going to use those Gentile dogs as a means to bring your country to repentance. And if you won't receive your own Messiah, they will. You talk about a dagger in the heart of a first century proud Jew. But notice verse 20. I mean, he even makes sure to keep the Gentile world in its place. Isaiah 65, 1, he's quoting in verse 20. But Isaiah... Isaiah is very bold, I should say. You didn't say something like this in ancient Israel that God was going to switch the light to the Gentile world. But Isaiah said it anyways. Here's what he said. I was found of them. God says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. Here's what he's saying. The Gentile world's posture before God set the light to them was not seeking Him, not asking after Him. I fear sometimes in English-speaking world Christianity, or Christendom, I should say, especially among proponents of replacement theology, there is a superior spirit that we're the new Jews, and therefore better. Not the case. Basically, here's what he's saying. God did not send the Gospel to the Gentiles because He saw they were smart enough to believe. God did not send the gospel to the Gentiles because they were zealous enough to send missionaries around the world or organized to build large institutions or intellectual enough to fill the libraries full of theological volumes. God sent the Gentiles the gospel because it pleased Him to do so, period. But here's what's amazing, and this is going to be developed more in the next chapter. I mean, do you understand? If you're a Gentile Christian this morning... Part of the reason God saved you is to be used collectively with the saved Gentile world to bring Israel back to repentance and recognition of their Messiah. I don't want to say we're a means to an end as though God doesn't care about us, but in a sense we are. God is going to use our salvation to do multiple things, not just to bless us, but to bless the Jews. That's part of the reason the Gospel went to the Gentiles. Verse 21 just puts the hammer down on human excuses. I mean, just the chapter we've gone through, just, just chapter 10. God doesn't uh, want to hear, someone says. Uh, he's distant. He, doesn't, uh, he can't be understood. He's unwilling to save and so on. I didn't really hear. I didn't really understand. I didn't really have a chance. The next verse in Isaiah 65 is quoted. Unto Israel he saith, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Have you ever tried to hold up your hands for a really long time? It's tiring. I remember at a 
youth meeting years ago. He had one of the strong young men come up and hold out two pitchers of water as long as he could. And then he finally got tired and quit. And then he grabbed a girl from the audience and he said, uh, now you come see how you do. And of course she knew how long he took, so she took five seconds longer. But the point was how difficult it was to do that. You think of Moses, here he is praying when Israel's in battle. And what, what had to happen? Aaron and her had to hold up his hands. You know, there's one, though, interceding for you and I, reaching out to you and I, that nobody has to hold up his hands. Look how God's depicted here. All day long, this is generation upon generation, I have stretched forth. Now, that term means uh, a spread out. The picture's like a sail, you know, on a ship. God's saying for generations upon generations, through all the blowing winds of human rebellion, I've been stretched forth leaning towards humanity. Longing to reconcile, longing to receive, to cleanse, to heal. To what kind of people? To poor Freudian innocent victims of circumstances who were sinners because grandma burned the biscuits when they were 12. No. I have stretched forth my hands, the Lord says, to disobedient and gainsaying people. Disobedient, we know that one. Gainsaying means they contradicted and opposed the shepherd of their souls. The Lord says, I'm stretched out, ready to redeem those that will not yield their neck. And they're constantly shoving me away. Now that's not just limited to the Jews, is it? That's the posture of all of mankind, apart from God doing a work in their soul. You know, we live in the age of video, and everybody seems to want to video everything. You can find iPhone videos and those little go-go camera things just about showing anything. Well, I saw one yesterday. It was uh, of a plane flight, and the pilot, he straps one of these little cameras at the bottom of his airplane. He realizes it's working, and he leans in there, and he gives the, throws up the horns, gives the Hail Satan symbol there, climbs in his plane, and about two minutes into the flight, power and altitude are lost. Camera rolling, and there he piles it up into the forest. He survived. He gets out strutting his stuff like a peacock. Zero remorse or repentance. And God's saying, I've stretched out my hand to people like that. I've given unbelievable rebels an unbelievable number of chances. Do you understand, though, the day is going to come where God stretching forth His hands in mercy is going to change to Jesus stretching forth His hands towards hell and saying, depart from me. I never knew you. And what about you sitting here this morning? Are you one that's going to say, I don't have I got time to come to Jesus. I'll deal with it later. It's good to ask you the question, what excuse are you hanging on to to not come to Christ? You think you have time? You think God doesn't know what you know? I mean, what is it? Think of the excuses people come up with all the time, even sitting in a church week after week. I didn't really hear. I didn't really know. God says nonsense. I know what you heard and I know what you know. And the root problem many times is you refuse to obey the Gospel. Don't try to color code it. 
His arms are stretched forth still in mercy. And the sad truth is, many times Christian people are among those that act disobedient and gainsaying. Here God's stretching forth His hands in fellowship. We resist Him. Give Him the stiff arm. Make excuses for not obeying simple precepts. Try to dig up faith somewhere where God has not promised to give it. Harbor unrepentant sin that we know we have to deal with and we think God's just going to somehow forget. Not going to work. Draw nigh to God, He will draw nigh to you. But the opposite's also true. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. I think John probably heard a lot of excuses in his day too. It's just too hard to obey the Lord. All kinds of things from the mouth of believing people, but he said, let's call it what it is, shall we? We don't have time to beat around the bush. You take a timeline of eternity from eternity past to future, there's one dot not even the size of a speck of dust in the middle that represents your life. And this is the only opportunity you have to serve your king fighting the battles you have here. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it while there's time. His arms are stretched forth. But he knows the difference between pretense and reality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You are quick to pardon. You are ready to forgive. Lord, each of us, if we belong to Christ, are really another brand plucked from the fire. We had nothing, we knew nothing, we were nothing until You intervened. Lord, You know the hearts. Are there those here who You know full well their sins are not forgiven? You see them, and your wrath is stored up upon their head. You say, he that believeth not is condemned already. Pray, Lord, you'd show such a person the sword of justice hanging over their head all the time. They may see sunshine above them, but in the spiritual realm where you see black clouds are gathering. Pray, Lord, you'd help them to stop stiffening their neck, come to Jesus. And Lord, you know the hearts of us as Christians also. Is there sin harbored here this morning? How can we have fellowship with each other? If we're not in fellowship with you. Help us, Lord, to be built up in our faith, not by looking for some other way, but by the very means you've prescribed. I pray you'd make us people of the book increasingly this year. To learn how to hear, to listen, to meditate, to apply, to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.